how much they know and how much they wonder about the world and they have fully formed ideas and theories. And it just like led to this newfound respect for the fact that these even one, two, three, four, five-year-olds have a concept of the world and they're building their knowledge of how it works. Brown children, black children, children from marginalized communities are not centered. Their experiences at home are not centered. The language that they speak isn't centered. I even think as African-Americans, there's a lot of research now, as I'm probably sure you know, on African-American vernacular English, right? Even if a teacher is not able to go to an area with a child or with a group of children, the materials are set up in a way where the children are curious about what's there and can discover either cause and effect things or engage their imagination to play. I know we talked about this. I want to make sure people know the difference between bilingual and dual language. Welcome to the Teachers Forum, the podcast that amplifies the voices of K-12 educators from around the world. Join us as we engage in thought-provoking discussions about crucial topics in education, from navigating cultural diversity in classrooms to promoting inclusive teaching practices. Our interviews provide valuable insights from experienced educators who are shaping the future of learning. Together, we aim to create a space where innovative ideas and perspectives merge to shape a brighter and more equitable future for students and educators alike. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and engaged as we discuss the challenges, innovations, and triumphs within the education landscape. I'm your host, David Harris, so let's embark on this enlightening journey together and celebrate the power of teaching. Now let's get to today's show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Teachers Forum, a podcast dedicated to giving educators a voice. I am excited to welcome to today's show, Giselle Sanchez Santiago, and for us to have a conversation about early childhood education and the intersection with bilingual education, two topics within education that I don't believe get nearly the attention that they deserve. Giselle describes herself as a proudly brown, queer, bilingual educator on the South side of Chicago. Giselle is a product of Chicago public schools and the daughter of a veteran Chicago public schools, third grade teacher. And because of this, she's had access for decades to glimpses of both teachers, humanity and their ability to profoundly impact children's lives. She currently works as an instructional leader at Velma Thomas early childhood center, where she and her colleagues get the chance to engage with some of the youngest learners, three and four year olds about their theories about the world her practice is grounded in the rights of children, their right to be listened to, their right to be their most authentic selves, and in their right to learn in the language of their homes and cultures. And I'd like to add that Velma Thomas Early Childhood Center is located in Chicago. Thank you, Giselle, so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, David. I always start the podcast off with asking the guests to share their educational background, beginning in primary school, working their way on up, and then also then the arc of their career in education. So and how you eventually landed at Velma Thomas Early Childhood Center. So the floor is yours. 
So my primary schooling was here in Chicago. So I was born in Puerto Rico and my mom came with myself and my two siblings here to Chicago when I was about to turn four. And so that was when I was going to start my formal education. So I went to Cooper Elementary in the Pilsen neighborhood for preschool and then finished out through sixth grade in Pilsen Academy, also in the Pilsen neighborhood. From there, I went to Orozco for middle school. After that, I went to Whitney Young for high school. And then for college, I started off at Northeastern University. I wasn't quite sure yet what I wanted to study. And then I ended up at Columbia College, who had a Type 4, which is a teaching license program with a focus on the Reggio Emilia approach, which is something that interested me then and still interests me now. So I got my teaching license there from Columbia College with that focus. And then from there, did you go right to Velma Thomas or was there something in between the end at Columbia and then on to Velma Thomas? So a while at Columbia College, I think it was my sophomore year, we visited Velma Thomas just to get a sense for some early learning environments. And I knew as soon as I stepped foot in there that I wanted to work there. We had a meeting with the head teacher who's still there, Peter Brown, and just the way that he spoke about children and the way that the environment was set up. I knew that it was somewhere special. And at the time, I was really thinking that maybe art education was what I wanted to go into. And they needed an art teacher. And I was like, oh, I have a couple more years left. So it was always a pipe dream from the moment I had stepped foot in there. The following year, my junior year, I got to do some student teaching hours there in the classroom that I would eventually teach in with teachers that are still there to this day. So with Liana and Laura. And so I really got to get more of a sense of how the classroom works, how the school works, to really honor the children that are there. So once I graduated, Mary Kay Richardson, the principal, actually came to my senior showcase. And we lamented over the fact that there were no openings at Velma Thomas at the time. So I kept on going through my job search. And there's a school, Everett, another Chicago public school, just a few blocks down the road from Velma Thomas, which Mary Kay, the principal at Velma Thomas, was the assistant principal previously. And so I ended up actually accepting an offer there in like May when I was graduating. So that was 2016. And then August of 2016, which was funnily enough, the day before my wife and I went on our honeymoon, Mary Kay called me on the phone and said that she had a job position opening at Velma Thomas. And I had told the principal at Everett that really and truly my heart was over there at Velma Thomas, but that I was going to do my best to serve the children in his school. So we gave him a call and he begrudgingly, but okay with releasing me to Mary Kay and the Velma Thomas community. So serendipitous and I really can't imagine it playing out any other way. Wonderful. Tell us and tell the audience what exactly attracted you to Velma Thomas and to working that age. I'm always interested in people who have nothing but respect for people who teach three and four year olds. (laughs) That seems like quite a challenge. So what exactly tracked you to Velma Thomas and also to that particular age group of children? 
Sure. So actually, I call myself a Reggio kid because my mom, as you mentioned in the intro, is a veteran CPS teacher. But before that, she worked at the Chicago Commons Guadalupano Family Center, which is in Pilsen. It opened in 1993, so I was just about to turn five. And two years before then, they adopted the Reggio Emilia approach to teaching and learning. And so she was a student of Reggio as I was growing up. I was immersed in what is known as the Reggio Emilia approach. It really is a set of values that really honors children as capable agents of their learning. And so what I remember from my time at Guadalupano Family Center was so much play and putting on performances for the classrooms, both younger than us and older than us based on our stories. And my mom actually ended up going to a trip to Reggio Emilia, Italy when I was in eighth grade. And then I got to go to Reggio Emilia, Italy when I was in Columbia College for my junior year. I most recently went again through Velma Thomas just last spring. So I grew up with the values of Reggio and my mom, who was the person I looked up to the most, also studied that. And so when I found that in a Chicago public school, neighboring the, the part of Chicago where I grew up, and then I got to see it in action, I just, all my worlds collided, right? And mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to be there. And then as far as the three and four-year-olds, as I was student teaching and working towards getting my teaching degree, I worked at a daycare just a few blocks, again, away from Velma Thomas. It was Montessori Foundations. And there, I really got exposed to how capable children are. Before that, I had a sense of like my cousins being toddlers and being funny. But at that preschool setting, I really got to see how much they know and how much they wonder about the world. And they have fully formed ideas and theories And it just like led to this newfound respect for the fact that these even one, two, three, four, five-year-olds have a concept of the world and they're building their knowledge of how it works. And I fell in love with it. Wow. Let me ask you this. Explain a little more, I think, about Reggio Emilio. So I think I want to juxtapose it to what a traditional preschool might be. So that way I might have a better understanding. So what actually goes on? What makes it so much different? And why would you be a proponent of it as opposed to the traditional early childhood education, whichever way it looks like? My children are grown. I can't hardly remember, though I do remember when they were young, there was a lot of focus. They were at the University of Chicago Lab School, a lot of focus on play and less on the academic learning to, you know, getting kids ready or whatever. So I remember that. And I remember there was a tension. Sometimes there's a tension from people wanting the traditional way that they remember it versus this child-centered thing. So I think Reggio Emilio probably does some of that idea of child-centered education, but you explain it. Sure. And the tension is definitely there, right? I would say that in a traditional Chicago public school, preschool classroom, you're going to have the creative curriculum, which is the curriculum that's meant to be used by all Chicago public school preschools. And so those are kind of thematic units. So like you start with fall or leaves, then you move on to like a clothes unit and a balls unit. And so with that, the makers of that curriculum, I think we're thinking about what children generally of this age might be interested in, which you will have some children, right, that will be interested in balls and some that will be interested in the changes of the fall. How we differ is that 
we're an independent school. So our principal applied to be an independent school. And so we don't have to use that curriculum and we get to use an emergent curriculum, which means that nothing happens the same way year to year. So an emergent curriculum looks like our educators really looking at what the children are saying during their play and exactly that. Like we have tons of time dedicated to play, free play. And then countering that, we also have some intentional grouping, so small groups of children with an educator, and we build up their capacity to be able to talk to each other about their theories about the world. And so like a typical day in our center looks like the children come in with their families. Now that COVID regulations have allowed that to happen again, they come in with their families, they read books, they do sign in to practice their name writing. And once the parents leave, we sit in circle together and talk about how how we're feeling that day or children get to share any news that they want to from their home life. Lots of teachers have been using weekend pictures so children get to scroll through three or four pictures of what they did with their families and share that with the class. And then usually that moves into free play. And what that looks like for Reggio looks like an environment that has been intentionally set up to provoke curiosity in the children. So one of the principles in Reggio is the environment as a third teacher, with the first teacher being their families and caregivers, the second teachers being us, the educators in front of them, and the third teacher being the environment. So the idea is that even if a teacher is not able to go to an area with a child or with a group of children, the materials are set up in a way where the children are curious about what's there and can discover either cause and effect things or engage their imagination to play. So that's one of the ways that a traditional preschool classroom versus our Reggio-inspired classrooms work. Let me ask, is it a full day or is it a half day program? So we have both, we have half day and full day programs. So in the half day programs, we are more limited because they're only there for two and a half hours. But what we do is we have the classrooms loop. And so what that means is if when they're three and in the half day, they then get converted into the full day when they're four, you're following the same group with the same educators into the space of longer periods, right, of the free play and exploration. Great. Now, how are parents involved and how does that differ from, let's say, a traditional school? I know there's that emphasis on that. Sure. I think there is. And I think it's coupled with the fact that we're CPS has what they call child parent centers. There's only a few in existence and we're one of those. So that really helps drive our focus on our collaboration with families because we have a dedicated, I mentioned earlier, a head teacher. So he kind of oversees curriculum and he works closely with what's called our parent teacher or parent educator. So that's a different It's also an additional position specific to our center. And then we also have a community resource liaison. So she really works with, like she'll do home visits and track attendance. And this year she's connected with El Circulo, which is a women's resource center in the neighborhood. They they do Zumba and different crafts. So those three positions greatly help us in all that we offer to families as far as engagement. So we have a separate parent caregiver calendar and three days out of the week, there's an event or a workshop to attend. 
for example, on Tuesdays, well, we have a grand question, and this is school-wide, which is another way that we differ from traditional preschools. So part of our curriculum is led by emergent studies that the children have shown interest in, for example, like ice cream and potions, both of those I've been part of in my early years in the classroom. But then every year we also set kind of school-wide research question. We choose a theme. And so for a couple years, it was the park because we are just a few blocks from McKinley Park, Chicago. And then these past couple years, it's been community. And this year specifically, it's the concept of convivio, which is a Spanish word for like intentional getting together. And so the parents during parent-teacher conference in October were invited to share how they get together or what they do to get together either by writing it or by drawing. And so on Tuesday, when we get back on the 28th, we have a workshop just to have them look at all the work that they shared, all the drawings, all the words, and help us kind of hone in on a focus area for our research together. That being the parent group in particular, because each of our seven classrooms has also chosen a specific research question under the umbrella of convivio or being together. And they're engaging children in discussions about what they like to do alone versus together, what they think a friend is, if families can be friends or if friends at school are the only friends. And so all of that to say that we have those kinds of workshops on Tuesdays. On Wednesdays, it's always a field trip to a local park or a museum just to expose families to all the amazing opportunities that Chicago has to offer their families. And then on Thursdays, we have workshops with our support staff. So it's talking about dealing with diagnoses with our case manager or potty training with our occupational therapist or a parent support group with our counselor. And so they have those opportunities to engage with us in those workshops. But then also, like I mentioned before, they're invited into classrooms to read with their child on the daily. And then just on Friday, we had a parent-child activity led by our parent teacher from one of the classrooms who's studying insects. And so the parent and children were invited to work together to make an imagined insect out of clay. So the children have working with clay for a couple of weeks now and are familiar with its properties and attributes. And they got to kind of be the teacher of their parents, who maybe some of them hadn't experienced working with clay before, and got to show them how to roll out kind of the the tube body, right, for their insect. And so we really try to wrap around all the offerings to engage families and caregivers in ways that see them as humans and, yes, as caregivers and parents, but also as themselves. So like, Anything that we ask the children, we also ask them. And so I mentioned earlier, the classroom that's studying friendships is planning to ask families, like, who was their first friend or what they wish were in a friend. So balancing, like, recognizing that they're adults with their own identity, right? And then also giving them opportunities to connect with their child. All of this sounds fascinating. I think the question I'm, I'm having is, how do you gauge that what you're doing is successful? Are there particular goalposts that you expect for children to reach? I'm just trying to figure out, just trying to understand process, because, of course, in so many schools, those that I've worked in, public or private, 
There's this emphasis on grades, the emphasis on kids being able to you know to read by a particular level, to be able to master particular things. And it sounds like this is much more free flowing. So I'm just trying to figure that out. And also want to kind of put in there, you know, how might you deal with children that might have learning disabilities of any kind, maybe a child that's on the spectrum, spectrum for example. example. So, yeah, I know that's a lot. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure the system and how it works. Yeah. Two parts. Well, many parts of this question, right? So we do have kind of our accountability system, which is teaching strategies gold, which all of the CPS preschools use. And that's really looking at, I think we're looking at 37 objectives. We're including the Spanish language ones. And so we are tracking, right, their print awareness and their math skills and their physical abilities. What we're not doing is teaching a letter of the day or like rote counting or anything like that. But how we counter that is offering authentic experiences around pre-literacy. And so our environments are print rich. We have an amazing curation of books, diverse books, which was one of my passion projects in the last few years was to get us really diverse anti-bias centered books. So showing different lived experiences. What we do is have writing materials offered in all of the areas, not just, you know, a typical preschool classroom will have a writing center and a block center and a manipulative center. And so we have paper and pencil and pens available, not just in the writing area, but in all of them so that as they're playing and discovering, they're called to realize that print carries meaning and that they can make a sign when they say their ice cream store is closed or that they can take a paper and take tallies of a vote for their friends when they're playing party and can't decide what to do next. And so we're hitting all of those milestones or benchmarks in a play-centered way. And I think to measure our success, I think for us, success is going to look different than what you might find on a kindergarten readiness list, right? So for us, I think if we were to look at our, our children that are moving on to kindergarten next year, because we only have them for two years, because we're, we're only a preschool center, it's really looking at, are they able to state their theory and tell us why they think that? Are they able to engage in conversation with a peer about age-appropriate topics? So about what they did over the weekend, or why they think the lagoon nearby is green instead of blue. We're really looking at them as human beings, as they're learning how to be in relation to each other, as opposed to can they do these things on the checklist? Like I said, they do write their names every day. And so by the time they, they leave us, everybody knows how to write their first and second name. But that's not our measure of success. Our measure of success is how they relate to others, how they're able to communicate. And then I'll answer the other part of the question, which was about students with disabilities or in retro, they call them special rights. In CPS, we call them diverse learners. And so we do have 42% of our population are children with special rights. And so what that looks like is every single classroom in our school, all seven of them have children with diverse needs. Five of them are what we call blended, which is typically developing children alongside children with the diverse needs. And then two of those are what you would say is instructional, which is all children, all of the children have individualized education plan or an IEP. 
And so everything that we offer, everything that I've said so far is offered to those children as well. At our school, we have four areas of focus, one of which is the Reggio Emilia approach, which you've heard me talking about. The other is dual language, which I'll be talking about shortly. The third is inclusion. So that is really looking at these children with diverse needs and how we are going beyond just placing them in a classroom along typically developing peers and how we're engaging them with these theories and studies and research questions. And so what that asks of us is to look at another principle of the Reggio approach, which is the hundred languages. So the hundred languages refers to the fact that children can express themselves in many, many, many ways, not just verbal communication. When I'm thinking about my instructional classrooms, right, I walk in there and there's not a ton of children speaking because they're still developing those abilities. And that does not mean that those children aren't showing us their interests, that aren't they're not showing us their identities. They are. It's just different. They're using different ways to express them. They might be expressing it with their bodies. They might be expressing it with the kinds of marks they're making in the materials provided or in the toys that they're choosing to play with. And so if we step back and look at the hundred languages of children, we're then able to realize that even though a child isn't expressing their theories about the world verbally, they're still expressing their curiosities and theories about the world through their play and through their actions. And so I think that's one of the beautiful things and challenging things in our school is really looking at these diverse learners And of course, we can all marvel at a three or four year old speaking eloquently about why they think the leaf fell from the tree. But can we also marvel at a video of a child going to hug one of his friends, even though he usually is to himself and we haven't seen him interact with any other children for the whole school year, right? And then we see a video at a curriculum meeting of him initiating like shared affection with a friend over and over and over again. No words spoken. What is fascinating about listening to you talk, it is, I can tell your passion and love for this age group and what they can do. And it's remarkable as I'm sitting there like, wow, this is really something It's far beyond what I think a traditional approach actually offers. And what I like about it, because you said, what is it, 47% of the children are probably diverse learners? And what is the demographic of the school? Sure. So we have, as far as race or cultural backgrounds, we have about 80% are Latinx or Hispanic origin. We have 10% of Asian background or heritage. We're about 5% white, Caucasian, 2 to 3% Black, and then the remaining percent other, which typically they're multiracial families. Let me ask you this, Giselle. Within what neighborhood, I forgot, is Velma Thomas in? McKinley Park. So it's in McKinley Park. Is it a traditional in the sense that only children who live within McKinley Park can actually apply? Or is it anywhere in the city, if you're or another neighbor, adjacent neighborhood and a parent finds out about the program, can they apply? And if, if so, what's the process of getting in and, and how many students do you actually allow in? So, yeah, we're not restricted by any boundaries as far as residency boundaries. Um, so anybody in the city could apply to attend our school. We have 170 openings. Right now, we are at about 135. Those are filled. And so I think most of those openings are for children with 
IEPs because there is a ratio that we have to maintain. So, for example, in our blended classrooms, which is the the classroom that has both children that are typically developing and those with diverse needs, we have in the half day, it would be six spots for children with IEPs, whereas the other 14 spots are what would be considered general education spots. That said, we do have some general education spots available also. If anyone were interested in applying, it would be through chicagoearlylearning.com, just CPS portal for applying to preschool. And then there you select like your top three schools, I believe. Okay, I see how that works. Let's talk a little bit about the bilingual component of it. I take it most of the children, you say 80% are Latinx background. What percentage of those is English a second language? I suspect it's quite high. About 65. So is the instruction in both languages? How does that work? What does that mean? So we are officially a CPS dual language school, which was a many years long process. When I first started there, we were not yet. This is my seventh year with the school and we've been officially a CPS dual language school. This is year three for us. And is that different than bilingual? Yes. Yes, of course. I know we talked about it. So I want to make sure people know the difference between bilingual and dual language. Sure. So typically speaking, And I can speak from my own experience because I came to Chicago as a Spanish-only speaking four-year-old or almost four-year-old. And so back then, CPS had what they called bilingual schools, right? And generally speaking, if you're a bilingual school, it's usually bilingual until they're proficient enough in English, right? Like the goal is to get them proficient in English and then exit the bilingual services. And so... I was four and only speaking Spanish. And by age eight in second grade, I was in all English. And so that's the typical model. And my mom, who I mentioned before, was a third grade bilingual teacher. But her goal was same, to get them proficient in in English. Whereas in dual language education, we're really looking to build both languages up simultaneously. And so it looks a little different for us because we only have them for two years. But if you were looking at a K-8 school, I can go through both of those. So for us, it means that uh, we're a one-way, which means that most of our population is Spanish-speaking and we're really focusing on the heritage speakers. And so our language of instruction is Spanish for 80% of the day and English for 20% of the day in those classrooms. A two-way school, two-way dual language school would be if It was a diverse mix, so about 50-50, 50-50 being 50% are heritage or native speakers of Spanish and 50% are just English speakers but want to become bilingual. So that does not apply to us. We're one way and yes, so we speak Spanish for 80% of the time. And then the idea, if you're looking at the progression of like pre-K-8 would be that as the years go on, you increase the ratio of English to Spanish. And so you're looking at 80-20 in like pre-KK, 70-30 in 1-2, and et cetera, et cetera, until it hits 50-50, usually by fourth grade. So like half of the subjects are taught in Spanish, half in English, and then they kind of switch them back and forth so that the children are getting the content in both languages. And then Illinois has what's called the seal of biliteracy. So we're not just hoping for them to be bilingual, but also biliterate and bicultural, right? So there's a test that the students of CPS can take at the end of eighth grade to say, like, I am bilingual, bicultural, biliterate. And so that's 
a huge difference, right, between bilingual education and dual language education, where bilingual education is looking to exit students out of needing bilingual services and be proficient in English, and dual language education is looking to create bilingual, bicultural, biliterate students. Where was the switch, and why did that switch occur? I find it's fascinating, this dual language versus bilingual. If you can speak to your own experience, is there a negative, I'm suspect that there is, maybe the traditional bilingual program versus dual language? So I speak about it all the time, right? Like I'm passionate about my school in particular because it feels like I'm playing a part in righting the wrongs and not that anything egregious happened to me in childhood and my schooling or anything, but I wasn't given the opportunity to grow my Spanish beyond conversational Spanish. Like I've had to work hard to be able to discuss my work in my native tongue, which is Spanish, through no help from the Chicago public school system because they cut those supports off by the time I was eight. And getting to work in this school where we're getting to teach these children in Spanish, in their mother tongue, in the tongue of their grandparents, like that to me feels like revolutionary and super important. Not just because I didn't get it, but because like I mentioned before, like I believe it's the right, it's their right. And yeah, so I mean, research backs dual language education. My master's degree is in dual language teacher leadership through Roosevelt University. And Thomas and Collier are one pair of distinguished scholars that do research on dual language education. And they'll say the earlier, the better, the more, the better, right? Earlier, we expose the children to the multiple languages in the way that we do at school, which is like talking to them about their life and their families and the world. So in those authentic ways versus like maybe singing the alphabet in Spanish, right? Or learning to count in Spanish. So we're engaging their their identities and the language of their homes. And that to me, I think, will help them then connect to, to so many more people, both their families and their grandparents and their cousins and whoever else. And people across the world. Like when I was a teenager, I remember, though my Spanish needed working on, I remember feeling so proud to be able to help like a customer that only spoke Spanish when I was working in retail, because it, finding that moment of connection really makes a difference. And it's to connect to one's culture. And, absolutely, you know, so often I think in education, brown children, black children, children from marginalized communities are not centered. Their experiences at home are not centered. The language that they speak isn't centered. I even think as African-Americans, there's a lot of research now, as I'm probably sure you know, on African-American vernacular English. Right. But the goal was just like in bilingual education, like, nope, you can't speak that. You've got to learn English and you've got to learn it the correct way that is spoken. And I oftentimes wonder, what does that say psychologically to the child? That my language, my culture is not as good as the dominant one and I need to assimilate and speak in it. And like you said, you lose part of it. Right. You don't know how to speak the language of the culture, you know, speak to your grandparents in, in a real sense. So I applaud that. And it's very, very fascinating. My question, of course, the next one, I think, you know, might be where I'm going. OK, you only have them for two years. They're going to leave. But where do they go? Do they go to other dual language programs? Do parents come back and say, oh, I wish this went all the way to eighth grade? Are there schools in CPS or even private schools that might have a, a different model? Is, you know, is the Montessori approach a more maybe a little more in tune to what you all do. So I'm just wondering what happens after those, what sounds like wonderful two years, then what? 
Yeah. We ask ourselves every, every year, right? Have to let some go on to kindergarten. And yeah, we just had a coffee with the principal last Tuesday, one of the families there who just started this year, but are in a full day classroom because their child is four, asking us like, or telling us that they wish that we were a K-8 or a pre-K-8. And it has been on our hearts. And we even spoke to the CEO of CPS about expanding at least to K-8, pre-K-2 to be a truly early childhood center. And as you can imagine, with many things in a huge school district like this, there's lots of things to consider. And that's still a dream of ours to at least, at the very least, go to two and then find what we call a feeder school, which would take care of three eight. But because that's not a reality yet, our children go to schools all over the city. As I'm sure you can imagine, a lot of families from the dual language classrooms do end up going to dual language schools. We have a few in the neighborhood. And then there are some charter options as well. There's Namaste, there's AGC, who also have the dual language programming to be able to build those English and Spanish skills. There, as far as the Reggio Emilia approach, we tend to orient parents towards Talcott Elementary, whose early childhood teachers are also inspired by the Reggio Emilia approach and who we've had some collaboration with. There's some amazing educators there because to be perfectly transparent, it is a huge shift to go from our our free place, organic, language-rich like classrooms to a kindergarten classroom where you're one of 28, 29, even 30 with one teacher, where in our classrooms, we have at least three educators because we have the general education teacher, special education teacher, and a classroom assistant, if not two. And so it's a huge shift, both in like people, like I am one of 30 with just one adult to give me attention, right? And then also in structure. So going from this organic, we're going to meet in small groups and then come out to large group. And then I'm going to talk to you alone to like sit at your desk and pay attention to the teacher for almost six hours a day. So I will say that that we've had many conversations with families about the adjustment being a little tricky. And what we do to respond to that is, I mean, we try to talk to the children about it, right? We read books about what kindergarten might look like. And we take comfort in the fact that if they're not ready to like be one of 30 and just looking at one teacher... From a desk, they're at least able to take turns and voice their theories and turn to their partner and recognize and value the worldview. And so I think, yes, we take comfort in the fact that we've prepared them like in a bigger picture for the world, if not for that classroom specifically, and that that will help them adjust and get in time. What's the feedback of parents five, six years come back and say that foundation was amazing? They're so glad they had it. Their child might be in a different place if they had not had it. Yeah, I think that the proof is in the pudding, as they say, right? We have so many families every year that have had multiple children come to our school. Now they're grandparents and they bring their child to the school or their grandchild to the school, even though they don't live in the neighborhood anymore, or even though it's not the most convenient for them because they got to pick up this child here and then the other child is at this elementary school, which also offered first preschool, but they chose our school because... They know the values that we hold and they appreciate the engagement and involvement that we have with families. Really, truly, we're so grateful for families. And if you ever get a chance to speak to Peter Brown, he'll tell you he's been with the school for 20 something years. And he'll tell you that the families are the ones that have kept us open. We were almost shut down twice by the Chicago Public Schools as a funding or whatever other reason. 
And each time it was groups of parents that advocated for us to, to remain open. That's a great thing. As we kind of wrap it up, people may be listening and want to know, how can I find a school like this in Chicago? Or how can I get into Velma Thomas? How can I learn more about it? What would they do if they had a two-year-old and they're thinking about it? What's the, again, I know we've touched upon a little earlier, but I want to be clear as to how parents who might be listening or others who are interested can find out more and even apply. Sure. You can Google our name, Velma Thomas Early Childhood Center, or go on Chicago Early Learning. I think I will say that us being a public preschool that offers this is a huge point for me because you will find Reggio-inspired schools by the dozen in Chicago because they're private and they charge tuition that is beyond the average person's reality. So the fact that we get to offer this education where we're really honoring who the child is and asking brown and black and Asian children what they think about the world in their native tongue without charging <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, right? Like that to me is super unique. And it's why I feel like I'm exactly where I need to be. I could, right, move to any state and find a Reggio-inspired place of employment. But would it be one that feels like I'm there serving my community in a public setting in this super important way? All of that to say that, yes, if you're interested in the approach Google it. There are a couple schools within the network of Chicago public schools that have teachers within them that are inspired by the approach. You can feel free to reach out to me and I'd happily talk to you to connect you with those people or to learn more about what we do at our school. Great. So one of the things I always do as I conclude an interview is to ask the guests to think about and name a teacher who made a significant difference in their lives. And as I always say, I think it's so important to give teachers their flowers. So this is your chance, Giselle. So Miss Wax, Miss Lisa Wax, pretty sure she's still at Whitney Young. She's an art teacher there. And I think that was like my mixed media class with her in sophomore year was one of the first times that I got to engage with a teacher that had like high expectations, but also had an openness to interpretation. Um, Well, thank you very much for that. Great. And you can ask Giselle if you want to learn more about this approach. And as I think anyone who listened can tell about her passion and her interest. And I will dare say love of children at that age. And that's a wonderful thing. I just want to thank you again for coming on and shedding light on what I think is a very, very important topic. Dual language, as well as the Reggio Emilio approach and Velma Thomas, I think it's unique amazing work that is being done. And I congratulate you and continued best of luck in your position. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Teachers Forum podcast with me, your host, David Harris. I hope you have enjoyed today's discussion. You can reach the Teachers Forum on Twitter at the Forum 1993 or by email to david at theteachersforum.org. Let me know what you think or if you have an idea for a future podcast. Don't forget to check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode. To everyone out there, 
thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And to my fellow educators far and wide, remember that to teach is to make footprints in the sand for an eternity. <laughs>